friends. Uh, my name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and it's a joy to uh, give you God's Word here today. We are in our second week on this series entitled Real Marriage, and what we'll consider here in the book of Ephesians will be the key ingredients for a healthy marriage. So let's read the passage together, Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21 to the end of the chapter, verse 33. This is God's Word. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands love, your wa- love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is God's word for us today. Friends, as we look at this passage and continue along in this series, we want to consider here today what makes for a thriving, healthy, fruitful, glorifying, God-glorifying marriage. And in some ways, it's much more simple than we realize, even though the three practical applications for a healthy marriage is really challenging. Now, at the risk of di- giving a, an analogy that's just too simplistic, you know, it's, you could take any recipe of any fa- of your favorite foods and realize that you have to have the essential ingredients to make your favorite food the very thing that it is. So, for example, for myself, one of the, my favorite foods is simply pizza. And all you need to make this pizza is a good crust, good sauce, and you need cheese. If you take one of those key ingredients out, I don't care what you call it, it's no longer pizza. There's cheeseless pizza, there's sauceless pizza, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Because you need the three key ingredients to make it what it is. And in the same way, friends, if you want a marriage in the way that God wants it to be, a healthy, thriving marriage, you need three key ingredients. And that's what we'll look at here today. Those three key ingredients are these. You need gospel communication, you need gospel confession, and you need to prioritize your spouse. In other words, what are the three key ingredients for a healthy, thriving marriage? Communication, confession and forgiveness, and priority. And so let's look at this together. The first key ingredient for a healthy, thriving marriage is good gospel communication. The way you talk, the way you speak, the way you listen, the way you make your spouse feel understood and seen and heard. One of the clearest ways, in other words, to express gospel love is through gospel words. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul addresses, especially in chapters 4 to 5, the necessity of speaking the truth in love, gospel words to express your gospel love. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love. Chapter 4, verse 25, he says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Verse 29 of chapter 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
Chapter 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk. In verse 19, addressing one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So Paul is very concerned about expressing your gospel love with gospel words. It's not just for marriages, but it is for disciples and those made up in the image of Jesus. He's so concerned about gospel words that he even wants to flesh this out in marriage. In chapter 5, verse 24, he says, So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, which certainly involves communication, both verbal and nonverbal. Husbands are to love and sacrifice everything for your wives, both verbally and nonverbally. It includes your words. And in fact, the foundation for gospel words is verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The spoken word, which essentially is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is cleansed through the word of the gospel, is sanctified, is made holy, and by analogy, in a derivative sense, since Jesus and the word of God has cleansed the church, by analogy, husbands, the way you speak and communicate, can also cultivate godliness and holiness for your spouse, and vice versa too. And here's the key, friends the key is to speak the truth in love, and to have that right balance. You have to have truth, but you also have to love. We need that gospel balance because if you just speak truth without love, then you're going to break your spouse. If it's just all being righteous and truth without love, your spouse is going to implode. On the other hand, if you always just speak love without any truth, then your words will be superficial and shallow. It'll bounce off your spouse, and then your spouse will never grow because we remember from last week. No other human person in your life will shape you in your godly path to Christ likeness than your spouse. So, if you speak truth without love, then you're going to cause your spouse to break. If you speak love without truth, then you have shallow words and you actually don't love your spouse because your words will bounce off and your spouse will never grow because you don't love your spouse enough to confront her or him. So, practically, what does this mean? Words, friends, in gospel communication, in truth and love, You have to speak in an other centered way in which your spouse can receive and understand and listen and hear. In other words, the frequency in which you talk has to be other centered. Now, I kind of use this dated analogy, and I know that probably the younger people at our church will have no idea what this is, but back decades ago, there was this thing called a radio, and you were able to listen to your radio because there's a frequency that you dial into. And gospel communication, in the way that Jesus came down into this world, God spoke to us by sending his son, and his son was other centered and took on human flesh. So he communicated down to our level in the same way between husband and wife. You got to communicate in the way that their spouse would understand, in the frequency of the receiver. In other words, husbands, you have to talk in a way in which your spouse will be able to receive your words. And wives, you're able to speak to your husbands in a way that your Husbands, your spouse would receive the words in the same way that a radio has a certain frequency. A lot of difficulty in marriage is because the husband and wife are communicating on different frequencies. And that's why they're never really understood, heard, and received, and your spouse never really gets it. One simple way, believe it or not, to know if you're speaking on the frequency of how your spouse is listening, that your spouse is connecting and receiving, is simply to ask your spouse. Do you feel understood? Do you understand what I'm saying? Does it make sense? If he or she says no, then you know automatically that you're not in the right frequency and you have to dial the tune a little bit differently. 
Here's one thing to consider, friends, as we get deeper. In all the years that I've done marital counseling, and even in my marriage as well, it's not just speaking words in a right frequency to your other-centered spouse, but it's also to understand that a lot of communication is in tone, is in timing, and is in body language, facial expression, is in feeling. So many of the married couples that come, in fact, all of them, when they have difficulty in marriage, one of the foundational ingredients that goes corrupt is going to be their communication. And specifically, it's because in the heat of the argument, they're not communicating on each other's frequency. And what tends to happen is that one spouse is always speaking with facts, whereas the other spouse is always speaking with feelings. And that makes for a difficult marriage, especially when you're dealing with arguments and circumstances that are stressful. So one way to have gospel communication for your spouse is that in the moment, if you want to figure out what is the way forward, you want to practically and generally speak in this way. Answer a fact with a fact and answer a feeling with a feeling. Because sometimes when your spouse is expressing something emotionally, pain, empathy, hurt, and you respond with a fact, then you're going to speak on a different frequency. And that's what makes the situation tough. Now, if I generalize, the husbands tend to speak much more with facts, whereas the wives are emotive and they're expressing something from their heart, their loneliness, their pain, and their hurt. And when they're expressing this, they're not looking for a solution or answer, they're looking for a companion. So sometimes when somebody is expressing and wants to receive an emotion or empathy and you speak with a fact, it makes a marriage even difficult. You've got to answer a fact with a fact and a feeling with a feeling. That's how you gospel communicate. That's how you speak on the other person's frequency. Another way to think about it is this way. Every one of us has a love language. We have things that make us feel loved, accepted, understood. Sometimes it's time, sometimes it's service, it's gifts. You know, for those of you growing up in the church, you know there's different love languages. And sometimes you have to under, understand your spouse to know how your spouse feels loved and accepted. And there's different ways to express this. R.C. Sproul gave a simple analogy, an example, in his own marriage years ago. He says his love language is extravagant gifts. That's how he feels understood and loved. And for his birthday, he wanted golf clubs, but his wife, who was much more practical, bought him a bunch of white shirts. And that made the birthday not as happy for him. On the flip side, since his wife was so practical, she wanted a washing machine, but R.C. Sproul said, I bought her a mink coat. And that's why they're communicating on different levels. It's not just answering a feeling with a feeling and a fact with a fact. It's also to understand the nature and the nuance of your spouse and speak to his or her own level. Because sometimes you can spend a lot of money on your spouse and she never feels loved. And sometimes you can spend all the time in the world with your spouse and he may never feel loved. And part of what means when God spoke into this world in the gospel we are recreated, transformed, that we speak in the other-centered way on the frequency, on the reception of our spouse in terms of their love language, in terms of the timing, in terms of their feelings, and also in terms of their thinking. Friends, speaking the truth in love means speaking in a way that moves your spouse closer to Jesus. It means knowing the difference between what you think and feel and what you should actually say. That's the wisdom of it. You know what you think, you know what you feel. Even if you're right, sometimes love means you may not say everything. The best way to speak the truth in love sometimes is not to say anything in that moment because your spouse just needs time. It means knowing when to speak 
and when to listen, when to confront lovingly, but also to hold back. Sometimes husbands want to talk less. Sometimes wives want to talk more. And sometimes it's vice versa. Speaking the truth in love means not just answering a feeling with a feeling, a fact with a fact, knowing love languages, but it also means that you have to know the timing. And the greatest way to love your spouse in communication is to know when to be quiet because your spouse needs a time alone or your spouse needs to process, to heal, or your spouse just simply is not ready to talk. So gospel communication, friends, is going to be one of the key essential ingredients for a healthy, thriving marriage. And the better that you're able to communicate in life, also in marriage especially, the better chance you have to have a healthy, thriving marriage that is God-glorifying, in which husband and wife are shoulder to shoulder, going down this path, this journey, in which God will use each other to shape one another more like Jesus. But secondly, what's the second ingredient? Well, it's not just communication, but there's also confession. Friends, everyone, this isn't just true of community in general, but especially for marriage. And I'm going to say this without, and I honestly believe this is not overstating the matter. No change, friends, no change ever takes place in marriage. No change ever takes place in marriage. You have no chance of having gospel change in a marriage that does not begin with confession of sin. It just doesn't happen. In fact, forgiveness is the most important essential ingredient in marriage. Now, I've used this quote before, but in an old business book, in a survey that, for, that surveyed the Fortune 500 companies, it concluded this, that those companies that did well, that were profitable, those companies that were profitable did the basics well most of the time. The basics well. And in the confusion and the chaos of life and marriage, if you could do the basics well, your marriage will thrive. And what are the basics? Gospel communication and confession. No change will ever take place in your marriage unless there's a confession. Tremperl Longman has once said, a marriage is only as good as a couple's ability to fight for the marriage. And I see this principle grounded in the forgiving love of Jesus in verses 25 to 27, but let me summarize what he's saying there. 25 to 27 basically says Jesus loves a church, cleanses a church, sanctifies a church, makes it beautiful so that head and body are united, intimate, and harmonious. Because Jesus in his grace and perfect spouse, a perfect bridegroom, comes and saves a church, it means that the church can be cleansed, we can ask for forgiveness, we have the power of confession, and we could live that out in our individual lives. Leo Tolstoy has said it this way, what counts in making a happy marriage is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with incompatibility. Everyone's looking for their soulmate. Everyone's saying, am I compatible? And certainly there's wisdom there. But the key to marriage, if you want the key ingredient, is to know change will never take place unless you know how to deal in the gospel of Jesus with incompatibility. How do you engage conflict and resolve this? How do you terminate conflict resolution, not in brushing the problem under the rug, but rather with a heartfelt gospel confession and a heartfelt gospel forgiveness? Now, let me share a couple of ways to at least bring a broader perspective of how we resolve conflict and confession 
but this is from a book that I got by Winston Smith in a book called Marriage Matters. And I'm just going to share uh, very briefly, at the risk of actually losing you, but I want to share this sort of in a seminar way to say this is first how people usually engage in conflict without the gospel, not sinful ways, just sort of non-Christian ways, human ways, uh, ways that we approach conflict in our relationships without Jesus. And then I'm going to show you how does conflict resolution confession look like with the gospel. Now first, how do you engage in conflict, how most people engage in conflict without the gospel? There are three ways. The three ways are this. One, either appease your spouse because you live out of fear of man and want the acceptance of your spouse. So you appease your spouse. You find a way to satisfy your spouse so there's no conflict. You like peace, you want to be accepted, you don't want to be rejected, and you say things you don't mean, and you do things that you don't really want to do because you're a people pleaser. So how do you engage in conflict? You appease your spouse. The second more common way, and friends, this is just anecdotal, but the second way is what I, in my counseling, years of counseling and hours of counseling, is usually the way that husbands approach conflict is this. They ignore They ignore the problem. They pretend the problem doesn't exist. You avoid the conversation. You avoid sharing your emotions, your hurts, your feelings. You delay decisions. You avoid being pinned down. You tend to say no. So people who usually address conflict by ignoring is because they idolize their own time or they idolize comfort. It's uncomfortable to address conflict. The third way are people who sort of idolize power. They're not people who appease. They're not people who ignore the problem, but they're people who face the problem head on, but they have to win. They win at every cost, any cost. They settle problems by prevailing. They work hard to make sure their interests prevail, their way is done, that their preferences always are ultimate. You're intimidating, you're angry, you're aggressive, you're powerful, and you're all about conflict. So those are the three ways that people, apart from Jesus, address conflict, appease, ignore, and win. And all those three ways over years will lead to a marriage that begins to fracture and become brittle. When you address conflict in this way, friends, you basically have a building that at any moment is about to crumble and to crack because it's graceless. There's no communication. There's no gospel grace. There's no confession. There's no power of the gospel to transform. It's not being able to love your spouse or you build one another up. All these three approaches, appease, ignore, and to win, are self-concentrated, self-centered, and it's about you. And it'll lead to some level of destruction. What's the gospel way then? How do you engage in confession and conflict, forgiveness, in a gospel way? Well, It's in this way. In some ways, it's all about the motivation. It may look exactly like what I've just shared, but the motivation, the tone, the thinking, the heart will radically change the marriage. And this is the gospel way. First, instead of ignoring the problem or appeasing, instead of appeasing your spouse, you can yield to your spouse in an other-centered deferential way. In other words, yielding, gospel yielding, means in the argument, even when you're right, you yield to your spouse because otherwise it might cause harm to your spouse. In these instances, we follow the path of love because Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave up his rights, as we see in Ephesians 5, and he yields to the church because it's loving. And sometimes, even when you're right, you yield to your spouse in their preferences, their decisions, their hurts and pain. Secondly, instead of ignoring the problem, you wait to address it later. As you love your spouse, it may mean to postpone, to wait, to be patient, to address the sin in your heart and your spouse, 
until your spouse is ready in the right frame of mind. Waiting also means you overlook minor sins completely because waiting means that you're taking a long approach to sanctification and sin. And then if you wait because the gospel means I'm going to look out for my spouse and do what's best. The third way is that instead of winning every argument, you lovingly, gently confront your spouse. You address sin lovingly and gently, and you address sin not with revenge or with anger, and not with a coward way to overlook it, but you confront it because you love your spouse so much and you want to push him or her to Jesus. Those are the three ways to confess your sin. One way to think about it this way, to engage in conflict, is that, as Paul Tripp says, forgiveness, confession, reconciliation is not a response, but for Christians, it should be a lifestyle. One of the things, before we finish off in our last point, is this. What's typical of most marriages who are doing really poorly is that they approach conflict in the first way without Christ, and they have bad habits and bad communication. They are trying to appease, they ignore, they win, and they do this for years. And what happens is that they basically have a non-Christian way of marriage. There's brokenness, there's stress, there's pain, and then explodes into anger. And then they try to recommit under the name of Christianity and say, I'm going to change, I'm going to be other-centered, I'm going to be patient. And it works for a little bit until things implode again. And they are caught in this repetitious cycle of trying to change their behavior and then failing again, changing their behavior, failing again, until they run themselves in a cyclical route to the point where they feel absolutely hopeless because in that moment, it is a marriage in which they cannot sense or see the purposes of God. There's hopeless. But if you can approach these marriages, and this is why, if you could approach the problem differently, the number one ingredient that can really make a way for change is to take your eyes off of your spouse and put them on yourself and enter into your conflict resolution with confession, confessing your sin. That's how we enter into the relationship with Jesus. You know, he is the first mover. He's gracious. He came down to this world, but we have to see him for all that he is, and we confess our sin and brokenness. If you can enter into your conflicts, your relationships, if you could enter into your marriage a lifestyle of reconciliation, and even if you're just 1% wrong and you think your spouse is 99% wrong, enter first with confession. Take your eyes off of the, all the wrong things your spouse has done or blaming your circumstances and say, what did I bring into this relationship in my sin? Then and only then, you'll thrive and you'll have a beautiful wide open gate for a healthy relationship to grow. But it won't happen unless there's confession. Because remember, truth without love will crack your spouse. Love without truth will bounce off and your spouse won't grow. If you forgive your spouse, but you don't confront your spouse out of love, that's love without truth. If you confront your spouse always, but you never forgive your spouse or confess your sins to your spouse, you have truth without love. You need that right, right, that right balance and priority. But last but not least, what is the third ingredient? Well, using the pizza analogy, we looked at the crust, then we looked at the sauce. The last ingredient is we're going to look at the cheese, which is going to be you have to prioritize your spouse. Now, I have about eight minutes to cover this, but let's try to get through this as best as we can. Priority. 
The reason marriage must have priority is because of the power of that relationship, the intimacy. Husband and wife are, is the only human relationship in which the Bible describes as one flesh, the power of marriage. And this is why. Marriage has the power to set the course for the rest of your life. In other words, if your marriage is strong, even if all the circumstances in your life are filled with trouble and weakness, you'll move out into the world in strength. If your marriage is weak, and even if all the circumstances of your life are marked by success and strength and peace, you're going to move out into the world in weakness. It has that power because that's how God designed it. This one flesh union reflecting Jesus in the church. So if your marriage is weak and you go out into the world that is peaceful, you're still going out in weakness. If your marriage is strong, but the world is in chaos, you'll still go out into the world of chaos with strength. That's really the realities of marriage. Ask any married couple. They wake up in the morning, they get into an argument, it's a bad one. It doesn't matter how good the work and the traffic and the weather is. They're going out in weakness and brokenness, and the husband and wife just feels so bad and so hopeless, and it doesn't work well, because even if the world is at peace and your marriage is a wreck, you're going to go out in weakness. That's the power of marriage. Amy Bloom has once said this, Love at first sight is actually easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for a lifetime that it becomes a miracle. See, love at first sight is actually not that rare. Too many people have love at first sight. You just look at Hinge, you look at Coffee Meets Bagel. Many of you have fallen in love first sight with the social media. The real key is to say, I'm looking at my spouse for years, and I'm still in love. And you can only do that in prioritizing your wife. Tribal societies says romance doesn't matter as much as status and security. That's what family brings you. Western individualistic societies say romance and physical attraction matter much more than anything else. But the Bible, with its emphasis on one flesh, balances both without the detriment of either. The one flesh biblical vision and purpose of marriage or prioritizing your wife helps you to understand how your marriage can contribute to society, but at the same time values individual beauty, connection, and preferences. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh is a union. One flesh is intimacy. One flesh is security and it's safety. It also means priority. Because no other relationship is one flesh between husband and, like husband and wife. So let's try to draw this out a little bit. How do you prioritize your spouse given the one flesh? Well, if you look at verse 31, it says that you leave your father and mother and you hold fast to your wife because your priority now has been your wife. Which means you still honor, you still love, you still have family, you still have engagement with your parents, but in priority... Your spouse, in some version, always takes pride of precedence. Not leaving your parents can mean you still hate your parents or you try to replicate your parental patterns. See, one way that I almost always, and by the way, as I share this, some of the married couples out there may be thinking, oh my gosh, Pastor Will is putting me on blast in our marriage. I'm not putting a marriage on blast. The reason I say this is because every marriage is like this. So if you think I'm just trying to put you on blast, I'm not. I've done a lot of marital counseling, especially in the past several months. It's not your marriage. Well, actually, it is. It's because it's every person's marriage. One of the key difficulties that I don't even have the answer to is that the husband and wife come together, and either they're replicating their own family culture and trying to bring it into their new family, 
or they had such a bad upbringing that they reject their family culture when they're a child, and they overreact, and they try to bring that into their new family. Your task, friends, is not to replicate what your childhood was into your new family. You know, so some families are saying, all my dad was work, and he came back home, and the wife did all the cooking, cleaning, and I didn't have to lift up a finger. Just read the paper, watch TV. And you try to replicate that in your marriage, but your wife may be saying, wait a minute, this has to be a synergy. This has to be a partnership. I'm not going to do all the cooking and the cleaning. And you're saying, well, that's how my dad did it. You're not called to replicate your family upbringing into your new marriage, because if you do, that means you're not leaving your father and mother. You're bringing your father and mother into your new marriage. Part of what it means to prioritize your spouse is not to replicate what you brought up, but to figure out a new gospel culture for your family. Kathy Keller once said this in a lecture I heard. She says when she grew up, her mom always took the help to do the diapers. Tim Keller said when he grew up, the mom never took help to do the diapers. So they had a little bit of an everyday conflict of who changes the diapers until they came up with their own motto. And Kathy Keller says, finders, keepers. Whoever discovered the dirty diaper has to change it. But you see, you have to figure out a new culture. Here's the other thing in terms of priority, friends. You, don't want, you have to leave your father and mother by not replicating your family culture into your new one. But it also means this. If you see your spouse mainly as a sexual partner or a financial partner, a partnership, but not a one-flesh partner, you will find that you will need other pursuits outside of marriage to really engage your whole soul. Do you see that? See, if you just see your spouse as a transactional partner, whether for physical attraction or for finances, and not a deep journey of one flesh unity, you'll always find pseudo-spouses. You'll have to look for careers and hobbies and friends that capture imagination and your joy, your meaning, and absorb your emotional energy because your spouse isn't cutting it. Why? Because you put your spouse simply as a transactional partner, not a one flesh unity. You didn't prioritize your spouse. Apart from marriage, your parents are the most influential people in your life who have shaped you. And even then, verse 31 says, leave and cleave. That's why it's so radical. When you marry, your spouse must supersede all other relationships, even the parental one. So you find on a baseline level your most intimate union, your intimate partnership and friendship with your spouse. Otherwise, you develop pseudo-spouses, fake spouses, what are pseudo-spouses? These are some sayings that I've heard and read about. Pseudo-spouses that actually have more life-shaping power than your own spouse. One, we hear things like his parents' opinion and approval mean more to him than mine. We also hear this as pseudo-spouses that are most life-shaping. She's totally wrapped up in the kids, in their needs, their programs, their school, and their friends. Being a mother is more enjoyable than being a wife. Friends, I say that carefully because you don't want to dichotomize. Of course, you could be basically equal in celebrating being a parent but also a spouse. But in some ways, even the parent-child relationship is not one flesh. Another one is this, a, a pseudo-spouse that you're not prioritizing. Career is more important than me. Here's a test, friends. Ask your spouse, are you first in my life? If she says or he says no, then he has some things to work on. When you marry your spouse, that must supersede all other relationships, even the parental one, even the best friend one, even the career one. And the priority of your spouse should reflect in your words, your time, your effort, your money. Love your spouse in such a way that your spouse feels loved. Diane Soleil has once said this, love doesn't commit suicide. We have to kill it. 
though it often simply dies of our neglect because you have to prioritize your wife. And we see the power and the ability to do this because Jesus Christ is our perfect bridegroom. Jesus Christ, our Savior and co-heir, our elder brother, is the one who died for the bride and the church. He saved us. He transformed us. He prioritized Israel, the church, and the New Testament church. We are his bride. He brings us home. He's done everything in his person and work to save the church. And in that power, in that gospel transformation, you and I can do all the things that we've seen to make the perfect recipe for a healthy, thriving marriage. We can have gospel communication. We can have gospel priority. We can have gospel conflict resolution and confession saturated with nothing less than the grace of Jesus. Friends, let's take a moment. Let's pray at this time. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we received We pray for all the marriages and all the broken marriages. We pray for all those single people, all the young people. We pray, Lord, for all all the hurt and pain that we've seen. And we ask, Lord, that you give us the grace to look at Jesus Christ. Jesus, who died for us on the cross for our sins. Our perfect bridegroom, our husband, who loved us through and through and cleansed us by the surpassing worth of his blood. We ask that we would be empowered to live transformed gospel-centered marriages and lives, all for the glory of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.